So welcome back, everybody, to the Brubble Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Simon. And today, I am but a mere renter, but one day I would like to be a homeowner. But sometimes, as I look at housing prices around me, that seems like a dream that's further and further away. And maybe, maybe it's because Europe is in a housing crisis. So what is this European housing crisis? What's causing it? How is it impacting Europeans? And most importantly, how do we solve this issue across all levels of governance? So joining me today to, you know, open some doors here, put a roof above these issues is Anna. How are you doing, Anna? Hi, Simon. All good, thank you. <laughs> How's your week been? Has it been a... It's, it's been a busy time of the year, but uh, who knows, maybe, maybe it'll calm down a bit. Yeah, quite hectic at the moment. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm joined here today by Anna, who is, joins me as a housing expert. Can I call you that? <laughs> well, that's a bit too much. I've been working on the topic uh, for the past couple of years now. I think that's enough to qualify as an expert <laughs> yeah. now, right? So, 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 I mean, what do you do in life, I guess? Why, um, why are you the expert? Yeah, uh, so uh, I work at Hero Cities. Uh, uh, I work as policy officer on housing policy and, uh, and just transition measures as well. Uh, but as I was telling you, uh, I work, I started to work on housing when I joined Eurocities. Um, my background is on economic policy. Um, I studied a bit of urban policies as well, but it was more about um, congestion charge, uh, transportation system, uh, and uh, fat tax. So I really got into the housing topic uh, once I joined Eurocities. Why do you think it's grabbed your attention so much? I mean, I guess you're getting paid to, to <laughs> research it, but I, I think that there must be some kind of personal motivation where it's... Well, I think that uh, the issue is something affecting mostly young people. Right. And, um, and I mean, we should care about young people, and now it's burdening up to more section of, of the population. So it's also about the most vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that voice back to my own wish at the beginning mm, okay. to, you know, own a home and everything. But I guess speaking about that, let's delve into the actual housing crisis and see, you know, what's really at stake. So Anna, take the floor. Tell me a bit about it. Housing affordability is becoming a growing concern as housing costs are rising much faster than people income. This sharp increase in property prices has led to various negative societal consequences, uh, including greater inequality in European cities. So marginalized groups as migrants, refugees, people on low income, but also disabled and single parents, as well as essential workers, are facing challenges when it comes to finding uh, affordable and adequate housing. Yeah, because it's, it's interesting you mentioned really the emphasis on the more minority groups, the more disenfranchised groups amongst us, because whenever we think about the housing crisis around us, I don't particularly see it in action because I, I feel like I'm well off in society compared to a lot of people. But it's really those those worst off that really feel these impacts of this housing crisis around us, right? Yeah, yeah. More and more people are under huge pressure. They're dealing with low wages and the current rise in inflation, soaring food, energy costs, uh, and the even in increasing in rent. Also, social housing options are limited and often have long waiting lists. So it's become common for households to allocate 50% or more of their income in rent. And find to find more affordable housing, many people are forced to live far away from their workplace. 
essential services, but also like from social support networks. Uh, to have an overview of what is happening in European cities, uh, I could mention a few examples. Yeah, no, definitely, because I think it's nice to kind of paint that picture a bit, because like I was saying earlier, sometimes it seems very far away from us, but it's, it's, I think it's good before we start looking into what causes the housing crisis to see what you know, the impacts across different cities. So, so please go on. Yeah, yeah so I'm going to start uh, with, uh, with Milan, which is uh, the Italian city with the highest inequality in income distribution, with about 40% of its neighbor no longer affordable uh, for a family with an average income. In the past eight years, house prices have almost doubled, while the average income of the city's uh, inhabitants has only grown by 5%. Mm-hmm. And uh, the city ex- has experienced a major uh, immigration of young people from southern Italy due to lack of job opportunities there, uh, but the salary in the cities can still be low and people cannot afford to work and live there. Local authorities do not have access to the right tools to slow down the increase in rental prices, and over-tourism is pushing up prices. And now the city is in the process of approving a new strategy for housing, uh, which in- includes significant plans to improve city social housing stock by developing projects to retrofit deteriorating flats and therefore allow also like key workers, like teachers, uh, people working uh, uh, in the transportation uh, system to rent the house uh, and apartments at affordable prices. And yeah. um, It's a pretty crazy dis- discrepancy when you think about that, but that half of your income going towards rent, because I think the, the suggest is a third, right? From what I've seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's it, it, it depends. It can be like, it goes from 40% to 60% of, of the income uh, like going yeah. Are uh, to any, rent. And I think that's an Italian example. And some people call Italian sometimes an extreme case. I'm looking at you in Italian yourself. So, <laughs> yeah. But uh, there's some other geographic examples from across Europe of yeah. all this uh, housing yeah. crisis impacting people, right? Uh, Bratislava. Uh, Bratislava is the second least affordable city in Europe after Amsterdam. That's your trivia question for today. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. In, in the Slovakian capital, there is a significant mismatch between income levels and housing prices. There is very limited social housing uh, due to the privatization of the housing stock, which followed the collapse of communism. And there are limited financial tools now being provided by the national level or by the European Union uh, to support the increase uh, and the development of uh, a public housing stock. Here as well, local government has issued uh, an open call for owners to rent flats to the city's local government, uh, which can be distributed to tenants in need. And uh, in Dublin, the current severe shortage of affordable rental stock has also left people facing soaring rents and overcrowding. There are long waiting lists for social housing, and on average, 50 to 60% of people's salaries goes of rent. So uh, It's even worse. <laughs> it's even worse, and uh, Ireland has seen a, a continued trend in immigration. So young graduates uh, and working millennials are leaving the city for the countryside now. And it's time they are living on the account of uh, a housing crisis exacerbated by inflation, which is destroying their future perspective. So millennials were too young to buy when prices were at their lowest 10 years mm-hmm. ago. 
and now they don't have enough funds to cover a deposit for a house and repayments. Because they do call us sometimes, or maybe this is more of an, a Canadian or American term, or the, the forgotten generation, right? Exactly. Where I feel like our parents had like the last opportunity to really become mm-hmm. landowners, and now we're here. Exactly. And yeah, and a few days ago, uh, the OECD territorial reviews for the Brussels Canada region was released. So it's impacting us here, too. <laughs> exactly. So the region is confronted with the acute housing crisis. Real median prices of apartments uh, almost tripled in the last uh, 25 years. The number of social housing has remained broadly stable since uh, 2005. So right before the financial crisis hit, and uh, the number of households on the waiting list uh, for social housing more than doubled, surging from two to 21,000 in 2005 to almost 50,000 in 2023. Yeah, and, and it, it's, it's almost funny to think about it, too, because I know when people come to work here in the Brussels bubble, like people I meet most of the time, it's all that short-term housing of people being so, you know, moving into these cohabs and then leaving and that is fairly compared to like the Netherlands where I studied it's fairly easy to achieve but then you think about that probably has an impact on the local housing market where if a lot of these you know little apartments go to short-term things for students coming in it it leads to implications right yeah exactly and uh, there are many study about this now uh, but um, for instance uh, there is uh, an analysis that was carried out under this horizon 2020 program uh, under a project called Smartest, uh, which was detecting uh, how mobilities uh, and also tourist mobilities affect and exacerbate inequalities uh, in cities, arming social cohesion and integration. Yeah, so maybe I'm both contributing and being impacted <laughs> by it. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that sets the scene well um, to our listeners about what's all happening in Europe in regards to the housing crisis? Because we, we chose a few geo, like ones from across Europe to really point at. It's not just in one location. But I think what really stood out to me when you're talking about it, it's all very local, right? Each one has its own elements. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, communism didn't cause the housing crisis in Brussels, but it might have been Bratislava if we can blame it for that as well, right? Yeah, and the the most usual explain. I mean, it, yeah, the, the situation is very different um, and variegates around across cities in Europe. The most usual explanation towards housing affordability is the lack of supply, for which tight planning regulation and land constraints are blamed. However, since the financial crisis of two thousand and eight, Europe has faced challenges related to investment in public housing uh, due to austerity measures. So national governments had to reduce public spending and manage budget deficits. These often led to uh, cuts in housing budgets and reduced investment in social and affordable housing initiative. from 2008 to 2018, public expenditure on housing development decreased from 29 to 21 billion. Mm-hmm. So the European economic governance framework has not allowed uh, to do public investment. And broadly speaking, the economic burden argument was used to reduce investment in social infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, such as also like healthcare, long-term care facilities, schools, uh, and social and affordable housing. But the pandemic demonstrated that we need social investment to mitigate increasing inequality. Uh, 
so this has like the lack of public investment in affordable housing, uh, not only in Europe, but also elsewhere in the world, has a significant uh, social, economic and political implication, highlighting the importance of robust uh, housing and social policies. Yeah. And is that because that's, I think, one factor we could point towards. Is that the only factor behind this housing crisis? Are there other things that really have caused this shortage or increase in prices? So, yeah, the other factor is that the Europe's residential real estate has become an attractive asset class for investors worldwide. And that was supported by a range of uh, government policies uh, that are aimed at homeowners. And the concern is that institutional investors buy up the housing stock, outbidding families yeah. uh, who have access to fewer resources, of course. And this is what we call the financialization of the housing stock. It's been a huge issue in Canada, from what because a lot of what happened in Canada, where I'm originally from, is we see a lot of you know often Chinese uh, with a lot of money, they want to offshore it in a safer investment. And culturally, for them, buying property is the way to do it. So they buy property in Canada, leading to a shortage for the lowest off, and then it just compounds and compounds. So should we move a bit towards, you know, not solving these problems, but looking a bit at what we can do about it? Because we looked at some of the, the, the factors causing this housing crisis. What do we do next, right? Where do we go forward from? Yeah, so city leaders did what they could, as we saw during the coronavirus pandemic, and also later uh, during the inflation and the energy crisis, uh, with a lot of courage for tough inter- interventions, also by utilizing their social budget. Um, but they don't have the ability to act, as I was saying before, uh, because there is also a EU regulatory framework which, which plays a, a significant role when it comes to the scope for cities and regions to shape housing policy. So first of all, we need a fundamental change in the mindset. Housing must serve as common goods. Mm. And, and what do you mean by that? Yeah, so under this premise, competition law, as recently called for by the uh, EU housing ministers uh, in Guillaume, uh, under the Spanish presidency, must be designed to promote housing for a broad section of population. Now, the stated rules only allow national governments to invest in social housing for a socially disadvantaged group. Right. But the housing crisis is expanding also to middle class, and that has to be tackled as well. The economic governance, as I was saying before, must facilitate long-term public investment and EU funds must be channeled directly and more specifically to cities and region. So, of course, the best practice uh, that I can mention here is, is Vienna. So, in Vienna, more than 60% of the city inhabitants uh, live in subsidized housing, and nearly half of the housing market is made up of city-owned flat or cooperative apartments. Right. So they have this system um, which also involves third sector in developing uh, affordable and social housing mm-hmm. uh, stock. In the 80s and 90s, when other cities were privatizing their social housing stock, Vienna did not. And of course, the strategy has been very successful, giving the city the ability to maintain a large number of buildings and regulate rents. 
Do, do you see cities kind of following that example? Because I, I know that Vienna's always stood alone, right? And I know we've seen more and more interest, like you were pointing at the, at the Gijon, at what was happening there, that there's more movement, right? Yeah, so in contrast to Vienna, in most European cities, uh, uh, post-war social housing wasn't integrated into existing neighborhoods. Right. Uh, rather, that it was built outside of the city, isolating those who live there and creating... Mm -hmm. uh, the social ghettos. So now, of course, there is a, a, a change, a shift in the in the paradigm, and in places like Lyon, Barcelona, Lisbon, uh, municipal leaders are adopting elements of the Viennese model um, and remove the stigma surrounding social housing projects. So, of course, there is uh, an ever increasing. Uh, the, in the stock of uh, permanently affordable housing, which is provisioned by the public sector, with uh, also like partnership with the private sector. Um, so basically, they involve uh, and make the private sector sector responsible for providing affordable housing. In Barcelona, that means requiring 30% of homes to be affordable within the existing city fabric and 40% of the in the new uh, developments. But in Barcelona, the, uh, the, the availability of the affordable housing stock is also growing thanks to the public acquisition of private housing and the temporary public management of, uh, of privately owned housing. This is the example um, of what is happening in uh, Ciudad de Granada. And where there was like built a co-living uh, space uh, for elderly people, basically. So those people gave to the municipality their own uh, private apartment to go live in this uh, in this housing facility, where basically uh, you have uh, support services uh, uh, such as uh, like social activities programs, 24-7 uh, assistance, uh, uh, small maintenance of the housing unit as well. It sounds very fascinating, but I, I'm just wondering, when we look at, you know, the broader European context, can the lessons from Vienna, from more of the, the, the social housing market, you know, perspective on this, can that be extrapolated across all European cities or is there different local contexts? Like what makes that work? So in that case, in the Viennese case, uh, I, I will go back to what we were saying before. Yeah. So, and the multi-level governance framework. So in the Viennese case, it's also like Austria acting uh, with a federal tax on income to gather mm -hmm. funds that will be reinvested uh, in social housing. And of course, is also the presence uh, of uh, not for or limited for profit uh, housing association uh, that keep the the social and affordable housing uh, projects uh, alive uh, because basically the money gathered uh, from the rents they go in a wealth fund in a revolving fund and basically they have to reinvest those money to build uh, more social and affordable housing uh, so that is uh, that is the starting point do you think we'll get there in, like, a city like Brussels? Is that feasible? <laughs> well. <laughs> I mean, I think at least uh, the ties are changing a bit because I think there's that recognition that something has to change, right? Exactly. Because like what you were saying, 60% of your income towards housing, those poor Dubliners or what are they called, Dublinese? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. They, it's, it's, 
obviously the old systems aren't working the same extent. But yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think that uh, now there is something moving, uh, meaning that uh, uh, European ministers are recognizing that there is uh, there is a problem. There is the housing crisis at European level. We are also seeing the Commission, the Committee of the Regions, uh, uh, the Parliament mobilizing towards the issue. Because uh, what I was saying before, uh, the housing crisis and the, the lack of uh, affordable housing can also uh, lead to political uh, changes. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we have to reflect on for the next European election. Yeah, it, it's interesting to hear you speak about all these issues. And the more I hear you speak, I'm recognizing that me too, I'm impacted by the housing crisis, as, as you might be too, the listener, because it's it impacts us all, I guess, in very minute ways. So for instance, one of the things we were talking about beforehand was almost the energy crisis implications of housing. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, related to quality and affordability, uh, of housing, there is also like the phenomenon of uh, energy efficiency. What is happening now is that more and more people are affected by energy poverty, which can be caused by poor energy efficiency buildings or appliances, uh, but also by low income and high expenditures on energy bills. So it's just that you have high energy bills, you can't pay it anymore, basically. Exactly. So. The adverse effects of energy poverty on an individual's physical and mental health and well-being can be severe, and in some cases also they can lead to social exclusion. Um, so in general, when families live in poor quality housing, parents experience more psychological stress, children show elevated levels of emotional problems. Um, so this is like huge and addressing housing quality may be most critical for promoting children's health and well-being so local governments uh, are addressing energy poverty and alleviating its consequences in many different ways a key element that uh, is emerging across european cities is the creation of a one-stop shop to encourage households active participation in the renovation process so one-stop shop can speed up the renovation through various services like facilitating energy savings by installing small energy saving products, what we call the white goods, uh, executing small insulation work, or also like offering practical uh, advices uh, and providing financial and technical assistance to homeowners uh, in this process. Yeah, because it's kind of interesting when you mention it like this, because when you think of, I saw some statistic in, in some report that I was reading, I think one you might have sent me, yeah. Anna sent me a lot of homework for this, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say, but you had a statistic in one of them where, like, what was like 40% of houses in certain cities are built before World War II, right? And when you're a poorer household and you're living in a household like that, you can't afford to renovate in the first place. And even though you can't afford to renovate, it'll cost you more in energy because it's less efficient. And then you need some kind of assistance to really make sure that First, you can afford to heat in the first place or even solve the core issue. So it, it seems like a very compounding issue, you know? Exactly. And what some cities are doing, like Ghent, they are mm -hmm. using, in this case, a revolving climate fund, which helps the most vulnerable people to get a loan 
at zero cost because that is something that they could not get, they would not get in a, in a commercial bank. Right. Um, so I, I must say that local authorities are stepping up. Because uh, yeah, I think it requires innovative, innovative solutions to really address these kind of issues because I think they're very easy to forget about when you're, I guess, looking at the macro picture of houses are too expensive, but even the micro of my energy bill is too high. It's still the same kind of topic, right? Yeah, and I mean, there are plenty of examples also of renovation of the housing stock now across European cities uh, and uh, the refurbishment and the regeneration of urban areas. And this is something that is really significant to foster social cohesion. Uh, for instance, uh, um, a couple of years ago, I went to visit uh, uh, this uh, public housing uh, stock in Bologna, which is the city where I actually started my studies. It's a be- I visited once. I have a friend who did her master's there at the John Hopkins one, and they had these beautiful arches, and there's like eight secrets or seven. Exactly, yes. I, yeah. My inside knowledge. Anyways, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I lived there for three years during my bachelor's degree, so it's like uh, the city of... Uh, of my heart, I must say, and I I, I went there for work. Uh, so this is something that we were organizing under our mutual learning programs, and we were visiting different uh, renovation uh, projects in the city. One of those was uh, this amazing public housing stock, which was just refurbished. It was like 160 apartments, uh, and uh, the, the, what, what I wanted to highlight about this project is that facilitated the birth and growth of uh, a new community of inhabitants uh, because the city worked together with the social cooperative uh, um, and they basically accompanied the new inhabitants in the building to develop positive relationship with each other and with the territory. So some of the key activities were including the organization of events, the collaboration of citizens and association of the territory. They would gather information and appointments related to activities inside the village and in the district. And basically, there's this principle of social mix that was brought up so create a new balanced community. Yeah. I think that's interesting because it, it's, it's, again, one of those... I've, I've used innovative like five times, I feel like. But it's, it, I think crises like this, especially to impact the root causes, they require new ideas. And I think that's, you know... Yeah, yeah. What we exactly. need to emphasize. Exactly. Yeah. And also, like, in this case, uh, it was like the city working with the cooperatives and working closely with citizens. Mm. They needed uh, an intermediate person there, who was uh, this Moldovian lady, uh, who as residents was taking the role of community activator. So she was the person uh, dealing uh, uh, between the residents and the the local authorities. Sounds like a very fun job. (laughs) But I, I think that does demonstrate a bit that it requires a different mindset sometimes to do this. And, and that even to people listening, like if you see these issues in your community, I think it's more of a community approach. Like when you, you know, you see it, like you know, there's a housing inequality in your community, you know, help out the homeless shelter, see what the root causes are there and, and how that goes on. But 
I feel like I rambled a bit there. But I think that does mean we're, we're about to, you know, near time. And I want to wrap up by, you know, one almost final question before I have a fun question for you. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, are you optimistic? Do you think we can come here again in two years' time? And do you think progress will be made? I think that we might see a shift if progressive policies will be implemented uh, in the next uh, uh, European legislative terms. This is something that uh, we should look at. I know that, uh, as I was saying before, like more and more uh, politicians are worried about what is happening uh, in their local context. Uh, so I hope that uh, this will foster a change. I think you're just underlying the importance of the EU elections, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's something top on all of our minds. Well, before we go, and before I do the final goodbye to you in that sense, I always drop a fun, sporadic question on my guests. <laughs> it's somewhat related vaguely to the topic. And we're talking a lot about houses. And I suppose if you think of your childhood, home, apartment, wherever you grew up, what's the one renovation you wish you could make to that house? <laughs> I think the windows. The windows. Yeah. So I come from a place where there's, uh, like, most of the days are sunny days. Yeah. So yeah, but the windows were not so big as they are in uh, in northern European countries. I guess it makes sense though, because no? it's heating, like it keeps the house a bit cooler, right? Yeah, during summer, but. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, where I grew up in Canada, we had pretty nice bigger windows, mm-hmm. but they were like triple isolated or something, mm-hmm. which apparently you Europeans, I say, holding my Dutch passport up as well. Um, <laughs> don't know as much about because it's like it's like three or four different panes of windows to keep all the the heat in but they were nice but i actually had a very tiny i had like half a window in my bedroom because my parents have a lot of siblings i have a lot of siblings so they had a lot of children they renovated their garage into four different bedrooms Mm -hmm. it was well done (laughs) but i got half a window to escape from if there was a fire or something so yeah yeah good like in my house here in my apartment like i have such a big window yeah um, but of course, like, still don't get the sun that I would get. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say for my answer, I would love to have like almost like my dream house would have. I'm dreaming again about housing. I think this is on the top of my head, but I would have like some kind of like almost greenhouse section. You know, I, I don't know exactly what you call it, but you know, like a little greenhouse veranda or yeah, something. Yeah, like, uh, I, I mean, I, um, what you let me think now about is also like the green roofs. Mm. Which is also like the innovation now in most of the in in the in the housing stock uh, that is being built uh, across cities. Uh, yeah, it's true because it it's really surprised me how much you know I've seen like friends, like neighbors, family members in like, the Netherlands. They're really just I built a house, I built solar panels, done. I need to get the batteries in. It, it's such a standardized thing to have, and every time. I go to one of them. There's always like my uncle or like my mom, my girlfriend's father. They're always like taking the garage. They show me the big battery box. They're like, look at this cool tech. Aren't you? It's a real like almost like man thing to do. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. It's funny. Uh, well, I think we're about to wrap up. Anna, is there anything else you want to mention? Is there anything that people were super intrigued by all of your housing talk that you have? Where can they find you? Where can they find your work? So I, I work at Eurocities. Yes. And maybe you can find me on LinkedIn mm-hmm. under the name Anna Yafisco. Perfect, yeah. And I will say, Anna's a very busy person because I, I, we connected first, I think in November, November it was, right? Yes. And I've seen you make like 20 conference attendees all across Europe. So I think any city you live in, Anna will be visiting sometime. <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah, but thank you for coming on. I thought it was a very interesting dive into a very topical issue and one that I feel like we don't spend enough time talking about. I think, it was, I think it's almost forgotten a lot of times amongst almost the more sexy issues we have in Europe. You know, when there's a war going on, when there's, you know, inflation, when there's all that stuff, we don't talk as much about housing. And I think that's a shame. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's very frustrating sometimes uh, to look at data and look what is happening. But uh, I hope I'm a, I'm an optimistic person, so I hope we will do better in the future. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you for coming out, Anna. Thank you, Simon. Goodbye then. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>